Good evening, and we have a wonderful challenge. We're adding a few more chairs, so we're going to start in just a second, but we're adding more chairs, and we're so delighted that everyone could be here tonight. I must tell you, I'm Carla Hayden um, with the library, and yesterday we had a few anxious moments watching the weather and watching the news and everything, and even though we feel very uh, sympathetic with what's going on in the North, we're just a little bit, in, and Reverend, I can say this, we feel blessed <laughs> that uh, the storm didn't quite come this way. So thank you all for braving the cold and being here for a very, very, very special edition of our Writers Live series made possible now by the PNC Bank, and we're really grateful for their support. And also the support of so many people who are here tonight who help us put on programs like this and also programs throughout our library system for all ages. From Mother Goose on the Loose, one of my favorites, Pause to Read, and that's P-A-W-S, so therapy dogs and people with um, learning challenges, to Senior Line Dancing for Health right here in this Central Hall. So we appreciate all of the support. And so I'm going to get started because I think we're going to be adding chairs as we get along tonight. Many of you, uh, of course, know about Mr. Westmore. And we are truly honored to have him here tonight. In fact, we call him Marilyn's own. And since his first book, The Other Westmore, hit the bookshelves, the bookstores, the libraries, and even the e-net. It was one of the best-selling books, e-books, out there. Um, this Rhodes Scholar and Afghan war veteran has been nonstop. Many of you see him with commentary on MSNBC and Meet the Press and everywhere. But he also takes time to give back to others and to be here. Just several weeks ago, he was here in this central hall where he met with more than 100 Baltimore City middle schoolers right in this hall. And he talked to them about giving back and community service. And I'm telling you, if any of you have ever worked with middle schoolers, and we even have a few here tonight, let's just say that could be a challenging age group to inspire about community service but he had them eating out of his hand and ready to sign up and to ready to do whatever um, he could and they could to make it. So during this time when we're looking at um, Black History Month and African Americans who are also making history and the history, we think it's really appropriate that we look at the people who are inspiring and are making history now. And Westmore is certainly that person. Now, we have also I think they call it in sports a triple threat or something like that. Because not only will our special guest be interviewed by a good friend of the library, former frat board member, WEAA's Mark Steiner, you may applaud. We also have a very special introduction. You heard me say reverend. Well, this is not just any reverend. 
We are delighted to welcome to the stage to introduce Westmore, Reverend Frank Reed Bethel Amy. Come on up. It is indeed a joy and honor and a privilege to be here in one of America's greatest libraries. My father taught me when I was five years old that it takes readers to be prepared to be leaders. And one of the great gifts that God has given Baltimore City is the Enoch Pratt Central Library and this librarian who has been with us from Chicago for 20 years, Carla Hayden. I met Westmore through reading. We share a common friend by the name of Sister Terry Williams. Terry Williams has written a book entitled Black Pain. It is a book I would recommend to each and every one of you. And after having come and spoken at our church twice, when the galleys of the other Westmore came out, she sent me the galleys and recommended that we connect. After having read, how many of you have read the other Westmore? It is a significant, if you were blessed by the book, let's just give the author a big hand. And before we go any further, his mother is present with us, and let us recognize Sister Joy Moore, who is with us. As we get ready for the interview, right now I'm reading uh, four books. Uh, One, obviously, is Westmore's The Work, My Search for a Life That Matters. Uh, The second one I picked up a few days ago from a gentleman I met through Westmore, Kevin Sherd's book, Redemption. He's with us tonight. The third book is a book of history that is mandatory reading for all who want to do the work. The half has never been the half has never been told by Cornell historian uh, Mr. Baptiste. The fourth book I just picked up uh, today. It is by a Los Angeles Times reporter, and it's entitled Ghetto Side. And the thesis of the book is based upon the fact that while African-American males are 6% of the population, we are 40% of the murders, the homicides in America. At the beginning of the book, there is this quote from Camus, Albert Camus, the existentialist. When you see the suffering and the pain that it brings, you'd have to be blind, mad, or a coward to resign yourself to the plague. And tonight, we'll, get, we'll have an opportunity to hear one of Baltimore's own who has not resigned himself to the pain, who is not blind to the pain of others, and who has not gone mad, but a man of integrity, a man of courage, a new generation for a new leader who is not just a talking head who talks the talk, but one who does the work. 
Baltimore's own Wes Moore. God bless you. Good evening. It is, uh, it is beyond an honor to be here and beyond humbling to step up to any microphone that Dr. Reed has just stepped for. Um, Dr. Reed, thank you so much. My, my, my pastor, my friend, thank you not just for blessing me with the introduction, but for all of your leadership. And I tell you, it's uh, my sister, my baby sister, who I guess isn't a baby anymore, but, um, but she once said that hell would be one day God showing you everything you could have accomplished had you only tried. Hell will be one day God showing you everything you, have, you could have accomplished had you only tried. And that day when our Lord pulls Dr. Reed to the side, there's only one thing he's going to say to you, and that's job well done. Because you've done everything you've ever been asked. So thank you so much for your leadership and for your generosity. I, um, I also want to uh, you know, say a quick thank you to our dear leader here, Ms. Carla Hayden. I... Um, Dr. Hayden has not just been a, a beacon for hope throughout the system. She's been a beacon of hope throughout our system. Throughout the way we even look at our community and the aspirations that we have within our community, you have set the pace for each and every one of us to follow. And so, uh, so even though I still need to figure out a way to get you back for, for the ALS challenge and force me to pour a bucket of ice water on my head, I, uh, I could not thank you enough for everything you have done for all of us. So thank you so much. And, uh, and to my dear friend who I'm about to introduce and turn the microphone over to, Mark Steiner. Uh, he's been not only a voice of reason for years in this city and in this state, he has forced people to be accountable. Be accountable for the things they say. Be accountable for the things that they do. And ask all of us to think bigger and more clearly about who we are and who we hope to be. Your leadership matters here. And to be up on stage with you, and, uh, and even though taking questions from Mark Steiner, you always you have to be careful on that one because uh, there's no softballs coming from Mark. But, um, but to be up here with you, it means the world to me. So thank you so much. I am, uh, I'm inspired to do this story because in many ways when I think about the work what the work is and what the work means, it's when your greatest joys and your greatest gifts begin to start overlapping with the world's greatest needs. And then you choose to do something about that. Part of the beauty of this story and part of the beauty for me in, in telling it was not just to talk about the adventures and misadventures of my own journey, but to highlight those who have inspired me throughout the way, many of whom who are in this room right now. I cannot be more grateful and thank you and thankful for calling this place home. And I cannot be more grateful and thankful to call you my neighbors. We've got work to do, but I couldn't think of a better army to go do it with. So I will turn the microphone over to my dear friend Mark, but again, on, from the bottom of my heart, from the bottom of my family's heart, my dear wife, who I, that's my girl, y'all know. Um, 
to have you here and to come home like this means the world to me. So God bless you all and thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. So um, this wasn't really planned for this. We were uh, been talking back and forth by texting about Wes coming on my show to be interviewed for his book. Then I got a text a few nights ago going, well, wait, wait, wait. Why don't you just come to the library? And I don't have to speak with the interview here. So here we are. How could I say no? <laughs> so we're talking tonight about the book, The Work, My Search for Life for a Life That Matters. The first time we met was when you wrote the original book, The Other West More. And it's been a long time since between books, right? Yes, it has. Yes, right? it has. And when you were, I think the last week when you wrote this book, you were on your way to Oxford, right? That's right. So, and, that's, and that's a sojourn. And I, I, I do want to start here because I think this is where it wants to begin. And I think that um, it's a kind of, this may be a semi-softball, but that's okay. We've got plenty of places to go. Um, what it means to be, for you, this notion of a champion of work. What is that? So a, a champion of the work is someone who understands that the world is bigger than them. A champion of the work is someone who understands that we live in a big and a beautiful and an interconnected world and that everybody has a place in it. You know, I think about my own journey and my own life. I am here because I had people who were willing to see further for me before I was ready to see further by myself. You know, many of us, I call them the air traffic controllers, right? They're the ones that as you're flying in the air, if you relied on pilots alone to take off and land planes, then it would be a real problem flying planes because pilots can only see what pilots see. The reason that pilots are able to take off and land the way that they are is because they have air traffic controllers who are telling them it's okay to land now, you need to swirl around for a while, you know, be careful, there's rough air, go up 10,000 feet. You have people who are telling them what's around corners that they don't know. And so when I think about champions of the work, these are people who have found their passion in a sense of service. So when I talk about people like, and I'm not sure if he's here, but it's, you know, someone like a, a Joe Manko, who, uh, is, um, is he here, right? So, so someone, Joe, who's a, who's a principal over at Liberty Elementary, I'm going to talk about you like now. My elementary school, by the way. Th- yes, that's yes, that's went. right. That's right. <laughs> and a person who came to Baltimore, uh, and I hope I'm not embarrassing, man, so I apologize, but who came to Baltimore because he was following love, because he was following a girlfriend. Um, it didn't quite work out, and I apologize about that. Um, but he stayed because he fell in love. He stayed because he fell in love with the city. He stayed because he fell in love with his students. He stayed because he fell in love with his staff and the teachers and the administrators all surrounding him. It is now one of the top performing elementary schools in the city of Baltimore. And Joe Manko believes that the reasons why are because his school and his building and his classroom are full of high expectations, and it's a place that's full of love. He's a champion of the work because he believes in something bigger than himself. When I talk about people like Kara Alley, 
who I feature in the book, a woman who, yeah. you know, is from Boston and was raised by a single mother who was living in poverty. And when Kara was 14 years old, her mother got a job that ended up changing the trajectory of the entire family. When Kara went on, eventually finished school, went on a career, became an entrepreneur, uh, she started a clothing company, a company called American Mojo, which is just an apparel company. American Mojo. The Mojo stands for Mothers and Jobs because the only people she hires in her company from the top of the organization to the bottom of the organization are single mothers who live in poverty. She does it as a tribute to her mother. She does it because she loves the feeling of calling a woman up and saying those words, I'll see you Monday. Because she knows what that can do in terms of changing the trajectory of an entire family. Champions of the work are people who believe that we've got a certain amount of time here on this planet. And while we're here, let's actually do something with it. And, uh, and I'll say one more last quick thing. Um, and so, in fact, uh, one thing I wanted to do, I apologize. Why are you apologizing? Yeah, but, um, but one thing. I'm uh, just a potted plant. I'm fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Between two ferns, man. Um, but, uh, but one thing we wanted to do actually with this story was not just highlight the people who we featured in the book, but also, you know, tell, every, you know, tell everybody, tell us who your champions of the work are. Because very much like the other Westmore, I was very clear when we wrote that book that that book was not just something for people to pick up and pull up to the side and say, oh, yeah, I read that. That book was not something for people to pick up and say, oh, yeah, that's a story about the two kids with the one name. We wanted a conversation. We wanted a movement. We wanted people to understand how thin that line is between our life and someone else's life. And what is our responsibility to then do something about that? Well, the work is not simply about an occupation. The work is about why you're here. The work is about answering that call that we all have to answer at some point, whether it's when we finish college or when we're on our daily commute to work or whether we're dropping our last kid off and we become empty nesters. And so we've actually put together a, a bit of a competition and a highlight. So for people, in fact, if you go to either, you know, whatisyourwork.com or if you go to, if you have, for those who have Instagram or Twitter, you just hashtag the work. And in a hundred words or less, you tell us what your work is or you nominate someone, tell them what their work is and take a picture of them doing their work. At the end of every week until the end of February, we were giving a $500 gift to the workers, to the ones who every single day are making it matter that they have taken up air on this planet and are making it matter not just to themselves, but to others. So as you think about the work that you're doing or you think about the work that other people are doing, Again, go to whatisyourwork.com or hit us up on Instagram and Twitter. Let us know because our plan is to celebrate and push that out. We are creating and we are celebrating a nation of workers because that's what we're all we're ever asked to do. So one of the things I was thinking about reading this book and thinking about the last book, um, and I was thinking we've done a lot over the last few weeks on Martin Luther King and talking about him in some very ways many people don't talk about him. But one of the things he always talked about was that your life is really not worth living unless you live it for others. And he was very clear about that. And the other part has to do with the notion of love, all kinds of love. He often said that, that, if, um, that he lived a privileged life. He thought the world was at peace because of the way he grew up in the home that he grew up in 
the neighborhood he grew up in. Now, what I've discovered, the way you've written this book and what you've done in your last book is how important the notion of love is. Because I read how you write about your father, and we'll do a little quote here in a moment, your grandfather, your grandmother, your mother. Then you, no matter all the stuff you might have gone through, underlying it all was love. Right? And the love that powers you on and empowers people on. I mean, that's part of it. I mean, that, that to me, part of the subtext of this book is, is the power and push of love, no matter where you are, no matter where you come from. Because I think that, um, that love is the most unifying and stickiest of substance that we have on this earth. There's a whole lot of things that... that we can use as senses of motivation and use as, 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 as amplifiers of the things that we do. But there's nothing more powerful than that sense of love. Love will force you to run in front of a speeding train. Love will give you the strength to lift a car. Love will have you run into a burning building. Love means you will put everything, even your own safety and your own mortality, at risk because that's how much it means to you. And when I think about this idea of the work and even the people that we are featuring in the stories, that's their unifying bond, is love. Is the fact that they have found their thing and no matter what that thing is, because we have people who, in, in, in these stories, that's, you know, public sector, private sector, education, nonprofit, military, whatever the case is. But these are people who have found that thing that they would be willing to give their life for and do it over and over and over again if need be, because that's how important it is. We have to live life with that sense of urgency. We have to live life with that sense of context and perspective because if there's nothing that you're willing to die for, what are you willing to live for? If there's nothing that means so much to you that you're willing to give every drop of your talent to try to figure it out, then we have not found the purpose of why we're standing yet. And so that's one of the things that I was really taken by was not just the power of love in my own life and the people who loved me and took care of me and supported me in ways, frankly, that I was not even prepared to do it on my own yet. But what it means to be surrounded by a group of people who take love so seriously because they know its impact. So uh, there are a number of things here. I mean, one of the quotes I was going to say earlier, uh, and I don't have it written down as correctly, I can go to the book, but is my, father had been, my father had been my Moses and my grandfather was my Joshua. Um, so my, uh, my grandfather was a minister. Dutch Reformed Church. Dutch Reformed Church. Not too many black folks in Dutch Reformed Church. Not too many. So, so, no. so the Dutch Reformed Church was the official religion of apartheid South Africa. Exactly. Right. True story. So he was the first black minister in the history of the Dutch Reformed Church. So... Um, <laughs> when he became a minister in the Dutch Reformed Church, not everybody was celebrating. I'll put it that way. Uh, and my grandmother was a, was a public school teacher in the South Bronx, and they lived in this small home in the South Bronx. And, uh, and after my father passed away, my mother, then we all moved up to go live with my grandparents up in the Bronx. 
And, uh, you know, I always joke and say their house was barely big enough for them. But they made it big enough for all of us. And, uh, and when I talk about how the comparisons between Moses and Joshua, where my grandfather, one of the, one of the sermons that he would give is talk about how we're never asked to run the entire race ourselves. The race is too long for that. What we're asked to do is to do our part and then pass that baton off to that next person, to that next group, who will then continue with the rest of the race until it's their time to pass off the baton. And the only thing that we're then asked is to do our part. And so as I thought about you know, what my grandfather meant to me and I think I tell you one of the one of the real one of the only real regrets that I have in my life is that I didn't fully appreciate him like I should have when I was able to appreciate exactly what he sacrificed and what he meant to our entire family him and my grandmother my grandfather actually passed away when I was in Afghanistan and I was serving with the 82nd airborne and and I remember actually getting a message from my wife who told me that when you get a chance, call. It's important. And it took a couple days for me to get the message because we didn't have ready internet access on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I called, and when I called, I remember um, they put the phone to my grandfather's ear because at that point he was dying and he couldn't talk, but he could hear. And I remember thanking him, and I remember praying with him, and I remember telling him how much I loved him, and he never said anything back to me. But I know he heard me. And I think about his inspiration to me every single day because we are, as a family, who we are because he sacrificed what he sacrificed. I stand here because he loved me more than I was loving myself. And I know the only thing that he ever asks is that we continue to pass on the baton, that we don't drop it on our watch. My father helped bring me into this world. I'm honored by the fact that his DNA runs through me every single day. And I'm humbled by that. And my grandfather, after my father went home, And after my father had his homecoming, my grandfather knew that he was going to help me carry that baton until my time was done. And I'm forever grateful to him for being that inspiration for me. So there's so much in this book because every chapter is about, it's about you, but it's almost more about other people whose lives you've interacted with and what they've meant and done for you. So, and a couple I want to ask about. You, you write about Michael Hancock, the, the mayor of Denver. And, um, and he has a really interesting story, which you can tell a little bit about, where he came from and how he got to be mayor of, of Denver and what he's done there, what he's driven by. But I have a question about something else you may have learned from him that wasn't in the book. But let me start first. I, I don't have, most people have probably not read the book yet. So why don't we take a few minutes just to describe what, how you described... Michael Hancock, then I'll go to a question. By the way, before you do that, we are going to do audience questions. There's going to be a roving mic here shortly. So if you have a thought, question, we want you to be part of this. Uh, so we have an interactive dialogue with Wes. So, but let's go to Mr. Hancock. Yeah, Michael so, Hancock. So, so Michael Hancock was born and raised 
in Denver, Colorado. And Michael was, uh, lived in an incredibly abuse, abusive situation as he was crying, and abuse of literally every definition of abuse. Um, and Michael, as he was growing up, only had one definition of success in his life. And he was like, I am going to leave Denver, Colorado. Because everything negative and bad for him about life was epitomized in Denver, in his hometown. And he looked and he said, I will never be able to break free of that unless I leave this place. And as Mark said, Michael Hancock is currently the mayor of Denver, Colorado. Because Michael realized that sometimes your greatest pains and your greatest hurts are the things that you need to run the fastest into. Michael realized that who, is, who would he be to look at every single Michael Hancock that's growing up in Denver now and to know that he has something to give and he chose not to because of a gripe? Who would he be to look at every single child that's coming up in the neighborhoods that he grew up in and to turn his back on them simply because his adolescent definition of success meant leaving his hometown? He said, no, my adolescent definition of success was leaving my hometown. My adult, my grown-up definition of success is make it better. And so Michael then devoted his life to being a servant to the place that hurt him the most. He made Denver, Colorado his work. And so now as the mayor of Denver and, and watching him go at, at, at Mach 3 throughout the process of the day, but he does it with a sense of joy and a sense of glee because his goal is to make sure that his childhood doesn't have to happen for any more kids who are growing up while he happens to serve as his chief executive. There's a neighborhood in Denver. I don't know how many of y'all know Denver very well. It's called Five Points. That's right. That's right. And Five Points is the black neighborhood, the inner city of Denver. Um, And it had its own Apollo and its own Royal Theater in the heart of it. And it was a very special neighborhood, which he grew up in. That was his neighborhood. But I'm curious what you learned from Michael Hancock about what it means to run a city. I'm not saying, I know everybody saying it's Westmoreland from here. I'm not going there. (laughs) I'm not going there. But I'm saying we all have ideas and visions about where this city should go and where cities should go. And what do you learn from a man about, from Michael Hancock about where this city should go? And what, even more importantly to me, what you think is missing? Because I know you, I mean, I know that you, 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 you always kind of move in a very positive vein. And I think that's a very beautiful thing. But there's a whole lot about where we live that is not positive. And we don't, we always want to kind of Oh, yes, we have Under Armour. They're hiring all these people. That's a lovely thing. I think it's a good thing that he's doing that. I like to know how many of the folks are being hired are black, but he's doing a good thing. But, but, so, but the question is, what do you see for Baltimore that you saw through your learning from Michael Hancock about where this city can think about going that it's not? Um, well, so, so, so first thing, I think that being positive doesn't necessarily being naive, right? That's right. Where... Um, where we can be positive, and in my opinion, we have to be positive because we can't, we can't jump into a pool of negativity and think that somehow that's going to help us to swim, right? We have to be positive and optimistic about where we live, but we have to make sure that our work is not curtailed by that. Being positive doesn't necessarily mean being satisfied. 
I'm very positive, but I have to tell you right now, and everybody who knows me knows I am not satisfied. And I even think about the, 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 the work that's being, you know, done here where, you know, when, when my wife and I, when we moved back to Baltimore two years ago, um, we didn't come back to sit on the sidelines, right? We came back because we believe deeply in this city and we believe that it's going to take every single person to be involved in making it what it is going to be. I think about the things that are happening here and there's a few things that I know as we're thinking about it. And we can get into kind of like, you know, technical details and specific things that we can do. But there's a bigger overarching point. And that answer is we can never have an honest conversation about the future of the city if only a small part of the city is part of that conversation. And we can... And we can never have an honest conversation about the future of the city if only a small part of the population is even being thought about in that conversation. So, 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 so I, I, think, I think we have to be able to approach our challenges with positivity. We have to be able to approach our challenges with optimism. But we also have to make sure that optimism is met with urgency. That that positivity is met with progressive ideals. And that as we continue to move forward, that the dream city that we all hope and we all push for is one that is inclusive, is one that is strong, is one that is diverse, is one that is optimistic, is one that's a standard bearer, is one that creates hope and opportunity, is one that is educated, is one that creates, creates a seamless path for every young person who is fortunate enough to be born in this city, creates a seamless path for them for success. And as long as that's not the case, we can be positive, but we're positive in the fact that we know we have work to do. There's a, there's a we won't go too much to the sidebar here, the, the, the book that Reverend Reed mentioned, I'm also picking up and reading at the moment as well, Ghetto, the book on Ghetto Side, which is a very powerful book just about the internal pain that causes the violence in the community and how to address that. There was a woman I interviewed this morning from Hopkins with two other people they just came out with a study that said that inner-city youth of Baltimore feel themselves and are in some ways in worse shape than poor kids in Ibadan, Nigeria, in Shanghai, in, in, in Delhi, and a number of other places. The two worst places on the planet for young kids, they would be young black kids, are Johannesburg and Baltimore in that study. There's a, so there's a lot there that if, if you, when you think about what positive means, I was thinking about Michael Hancock, thinking about, thinking about um, uh, Carrie Alley and what she created with Mojo, which is an incredible company. How to start thinking in different ways about what has to be done to turn this around because it cannot continue to exist. Yes. And, and, the, and the fact that all of our young people need to understand that there's a place for them inside of this world because that becomes one of the biggest challenges, right? Is when you feel that there is no place for you then you will make decisions accordingly. When you feel that, that, there is, that, that there is not that bar of expectations for you, then you will make decisions accordingly. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that, you know, if you show me a young person who doesn't care about their future, then you've also shown me a young person doesn't care about yours either. And, and when, when I, when, even with this process of thinking about, you know, 
the, the work and, and what I even want to highlight with these stories was figure out, okay, so what then becomes the motivation to get people involved and engaged in what we're talking about? How do we get more people who understand that it is not about them, it is about you? It says just as much about you as it does about the, it, in terms of the society they create, as it does about the people who are being consistently left behind. And I remember having this conversation, and I detail a little bit in the story, where this conversation with, uh, with Harry Belafonte. Oh, that was a great piece, yeah. Loved yeah. it. And, yeah. and so Harry Belafonte was like a hero in my household growing up, right? I mean, Harry Belafonte, like the Calypso, you know, right? So like, Deo, Deo, Harry Belafonte, right? And, but he was huge in my house. And part of it was because of his Jamaican heritage and in the case of my grandmother, it was because of his tight pants and all this kind of stuff, right? <laughs> but, but, but there was something else about Mr. Belafonte that my family adored about him. It's the fact that he was on fire for social progress. And he made his celebrity actually mean something. Because oftentimes you'll find people and celebrities who won't say anything, who won't get involved in controversial issues because they're afraid it's going to hurt their bottom line, right? Because they're like, oh, I'm afraid to say something because they won't buy my sneakers or they won't read my books or they won't, uh, you know, see my movies or they won't whatever it is. So then they stay silent despite the fact that they know their voice could be necessary. That wasn't Harry Belafonte. Harry Belafonte jumped into every issue. And he did it to his own personal risk and in many cases his own personal expense. And so when Harry Belafonte, I was, I was guest co-hosting his show called Morning Joe. Harry Belafonte was coming to the set in the 8 o'clock hour. And when it came time to ask the questions, I asked the question. And I said, a lot of people stay away from tough issues because they're afraid it's going to hurt their business. But you didn't. Why was that important to you? And he gave an answer that I will never forget. He said, because it's just more fun to live that way. <laughs> and then he said, he said, some people wake up in the morning and they call their accountants. I wake up in the morning and I call Nelson Mandela. Who do you think has a more interesting life? <laughs> that was a great and line. so, and the reason I say that is because to get involved of the lives of these young people, these young people, young people of color, the young people in our city, our city, if you're not going to do it to be selfless, do it to be selfish. Because we can never live in a city that we can all be proud of if we have a permanent underclass that exists within the city. We can never live in a city that we can be proud of if we know that at certain times we want our kids to be home because it's not safe after a certain time. Or at certain times we can't send our kids to X school because X school has a 51% graduation rate. Or when it comes time for your child to look for a partner when 61% of the young people are under some form of supervision or the correctional system. So if you're not going to do it to be selfless, do it to be selfish. Because it helps us to be better and to be bigger and to be more proud of who we are. Amen. And, uh, you know, I, in, in thinking about this, there's a, there's a quote you have in here. I want to go to this before I move to another area. What page is it on? One second. So um, let me get this quote, folks. Bear with me as I flip pages. Aha, here we go. Um, you talk about your life, in, in, especially in... Uh, uh, private schools and in, in Wall Street. And there's this great piece. It's actually one of my favorite poems by Paul Lawrence Dunbar that you write about. Uh, we Wear the Mask. Yes. 
And the line you put in here from We Wear the Mask is, we wear, we wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our teeth and it shades our eyes. The debt we pay for the human guile with torn and beating hearts, we smile. It is, um, it's something that I think kind of comes to be known as this, uh, as this imposter syndrome. It's this idea that in every room that you're in, you feel like you don't belong. And you're constantly waiting for someone to tap you on the shoulder and tell you, you know, what are you doing here? And it's something that I think oftentimes happens, particularly for kids who end up in places that most folks didn't expect them to end up in. Where oftentimes you feel like you're on this runway, and at some point soon that runway is going to run out. And so then what you do is you keep quiet and you keep silent so no one notices you. Because if no one notices you, maybe you'll extend your run a little bit longer. I have come to believe and I have come to understand that the greatest things that I found to be my greatest deficiencies are actually my greatest strengths. I will never again in life see anything that will ever make me flinch. That's my armor. That's my power. There is never a room that I am in that I don't belong in. Ever. And I want every single person coming up to understand that as well. You are not there because of someone's benevolence. You are not there because of someone's gift. You're not there because of some social experiment. You're there because you belong there. You're there because your voice needs to be heard. And I love this poem because it talks about how we wear the mask and it grins and lies and it hides our teeth and it shades our eyes. Because oftentimes we will see a young person and we'll think, oh, that's a bad kid. It's not a bad kid. It's someone who was grown up wearing the mask. And the reason people wear the mask is this. The reason people wear the mask, the same reason people wear the mask on Halloween is to be hidden because you don't want to be seen. And here's the reason why. It's because if it's, and think about it, right? If a person is not close to you and they say something, if you read something about you on a blog, do you really care? No. I don't. I don't. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, mean, I really I, don't. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, right. and maybe it's because we have thick skin, but I really don't care because I don't care what someone sitting in their grandmother's basement thinks about me. I just don't. Right? I mean, I think about what, what, what Dr. King said when he wrote in a letter from a Birmingham jail when, they wrote the, when, when the clergy wrote this op-ed to him called A Call for Unity after he was arrested in Birmingham. And in this op-ed, they talked about how Dr. King's actions were, were unwarranted, unnecessary, and what was it? Unwarranted, unnecess- unnecessary, and, and useless. And they talked about this fact that he wasn't even from Birmingham. So what are you doing in Birmingham? And they wrote this op-ed about him as he's sitting in prison. And he gets this op-ed as he's sitting in prison. And he decides to respond to this op-ed, which later on turns into what we now know as a letter from a Birmingham jail. Right? And in the first thing that he writes in the op-ed, he says this. He says, if I took time to respond to every single negative thing that was written about me, I would have no time to do my work. But since you all are members of the clergy, and I assume you're coming from a place of peace, I've chosen to respond. And then he proceeded to break down every single one of their arguments in what I believe is one of the most beautiful pieces of American writing and American canon that this country has ever produced in that letter from a Birmingham jail, right? So when I think about this mask and what that means, 
is if a person who is not close to you doesn't know you or whatever like that, and they say something about you, it doesn't impact you because they're not close to you. You don't care. But when a person who's really close to you says something or does something that hurts, that stings. And so what do many people, particularly young, many young people do? They keep the whole world at arm's reach. Because if you're not close to me, then you can't hurt me. It's a protection mechanism. We wear the mask that grins and lies and it hides our teeth and it shades our eyes. What we then essentially have to do as a larger collective and what I think I've tried to, I've tried to do even in my own thinking is we have to be consistent to the point that we are then allowing people to lay down their own masks because that's the way you make progress. And then once you're able to do that and make that level of progress, then that imposter syndrome has a funny way of receding. So before we, I want, uh, one more question here that I want to ask you a question about overseas and foreign yeah. policy issues you were dealing with yeah. and your response to that. And I want people to start thinking about what they want to ask for at least 10 minutes or maybe 15 if we have time. As soon as Carla throws something at me, I know it's time to stop and I'll know when to end. Um, and she likes throwing things at me, so I don't, I don't want to get hurt. But one of the things that I was thinking about with that poem that I read that you wrote, put in the book, then you have walked in um, a lot of mostly white worlds, a lot. Wall Street, the Army, other places, Oxford, I mean, Hopkins. I can name a bunch more, but you walk through a lot of white worlds. Yep. This poem that Dunbar wrote had to do with how black folks have to respond to racism in the world that people live in, yeah. wearing a mask in front of what happens in this world. Yeah. We're in a situation now, which we have not been in, I think, in a very conscious way, in over 40 years, since the 60s. From the moment Barack Obama got elected to the death of Trayvon Martin, the other things that have happened, the other deaths have happened in the hands of police since, to the notion of the murders that are happening in, in the poorest black communities in America. And people kind of now talking about the word that people use now is implicit bias. That, that not conscious racism, but that, that, that it's so deep in our skin that we have to figure out how to purge it, you know? So I, I'm going to talk about how you deal with that. Just bear with me one second here. There's a quote here that I just want to, again, I want to read. This is not from your book, but um, it is, oh, here it is. This is Claudia Rankine, who's a great poet, black woman, a poet. Her latest book is Citizen. And in the book, there's this one line I pulled out because it just goes through me over and over again. She wrote, you can't put the past behind you. It's buried in you. It's turned your flesh into its own cupboard. So, as a leader, as someone who is putting things out there, how do we begin to deal with that as a society? Because it's something that I think white America has to wrestle with more than black America has to wrestle with. The deeply embedded racism, you don't even know it's there. Just little things you do, things you think, things you say. It's just in us because of where we've come from, where this country has come from. We wouldn't have capitalism. We wouldn't have this democracy if it hadn't been slavery. We we have to acknowledge that. So what do we do? Where do we start? This is the time to start the 21st century. Where do we start? Yes. Well, and and actually, I, I think actually one of the most malicious aspects of 
racism is the fact that racism has not just stayed. Racism is malignant, right? Because it has not just stayed amongst whites and blacks. It also then bleeds into how blacks even think about themselves. It also bleeds into this idea of these expectation barriers that we have. And so, you know, I always talk about how, you know, I think we've got a lot of gaps in our society. We've got education gaps and we've got, we've got uh, you know, environmental gaps and, and we've got, uh, you know, housing gaps and we've got health gaps and all this kind of stuff. The most dangerous gap that we have in our society is the expectation gap. Is that we just expect different things from different people based on where they're from, based on what they look like, based on who their parents are or their grandparents are, based on things that in many cases, especially for the kids, had nothing to do with. But we view them differently as to what we actually expect from them. So I actually, I I wholeheartedly agree with this idea that the way we're going to address these gaps, the way we address the expectation gap, is to not say that, well, we're going to address it by not talking about it. Actually, the best way to address it is by talking about it and letting people know that there's a safe space to talk about it. Because oftentimes people feel like, well, if we get into conversations about race or structural racism or class inequality or whatever the case might be, that oftentimes the conversation will turn contentious. That oftentimes, or I'll be labeled as something if I say the wrong thing. Or in the world of social media, it will get pushed out 50 million times and go viral. And now I'm just thinking to myself, I should have just said nothing. No. The answer is the only way we deal with our history is by approaching it and taking it down. And also then, and only then, will we begin to understand how ignorant and unfortunate that history was. We have so many young kids of color who don't even know where they've come from, who don't even think with a sense of pride about their history. That level of racism is not simply about what happens to African Americans or what happens to Latinos or what happens to everyone else. There has to be a 360 holistic way in which we talk about our history in an honest fashion, but one that actually has progress as its goal. I never get into a conversation with gotcha as a goal. Right. Right. I will never get into a conversation with I told you so as my target. My target is progress. And with progress, though, it means we have to be honest about who we are, what our history is, and why it was unbelievably counterproductive, if not financially, because you're absolutely right. You can't talk about the American machine, and you can't talk about the power of of America's 20th century without also talking about the role that slavery played in that. You worked for Lehman Brothers. Right? You can't. Well, for for Citibank. That's exactly right. The history history of all those, right? And so Lehman Brothers made their money from... Cotton exactly right. from cotton mills made exactly the money right. from slavery, and we don't think about where that money come from, comes from and what it does to us because it's there. That's right. And it still exists. You have yesterday, the other day, the paper, my friend Charles Blow, who's a columnist for the New York Times, yeah. um, his son at Yale University, the police pulled guns on him because he was walking down the street near where a robbery took place, and because he was black walking down the street, they pulled their guns on him before they said a word to him. He's a chemistry major at Yale. Yeah, right. 
So, so you know, we have to address those things. Let me, another question here. Folks, please, if you have, we need the mic out here. Folks want to ask questions. What, how's Abdullah? Have you stayed in, do you know how Abdullah is doing? I actually just got an email from him three weeks ago. Still in Afghanistan? So he's still, so he's still in Afghanistan. So, uh, so he was, uh, he was an, an interpreter that we had in Afghanistan. And, and oftentimes when we talk about the, 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 the bravery of the soldiers and the sailors and airmen and marines who go on missions, uh, we often forgot about people like Abdullah. Because we didn't go on a single mission without him. He was our interpreter. So every single offensive mission that we went on, every time we went to go interact with the Afghan people or did went out with the mullahs, et cetera, Abdullah was right there with us. Every firefight, everything, Abdullah was right there. And uh, I often think about Abdullah and talk about Abdullah because this is a person who went home every night. While we went back to our bases or we went back to our fobs and we had our soldiers and marines who were protecting the fob, et cetera, and all that kind of stuff, and air artillery. Abdullah went home. And in the morning, he would wake up with these things called night letters attached to his door. And what these night letters were, were essentially letters from the Taliban or Hig or whoever else saying, we know that you're working with the Americans and we're going to kill you and your entire family. And he would show up to work every single day. Abdullah, his father was killed by the Taliban. He was a person who spoke out against the Taliban, and the Taliban thought that the best way to silence him was to slice his throat. And Abdullah fought every single day with us because he believed in what he'd hoped would be a better Afghanistan. What he'd hoped would be the dream that his father dreamt that he actually wanted to see for himself. It's important for me, and it was important for me to remember Abdullah in this idea that being courageous is not isolated to a single group. It's not isolated to a certain nationality. It's not isolated to a certain population or demographic. There are people every day who are risking everything they've got for something bigger because they believe in something bigger. And oftentimes, even when I think about Afghanistan, I was, I was talking about it in the, in the story, um, how Abdullah would often talk about how he dreams of the day that Afghanistan will be Taliban-free. And one of my great frustrations is I actually believe we are further now from Abdullah's dream than even we were when I was fighting. Um, that's not lost on me. And I oftentimes will think about him and his family and what it means to them as these wars come to an end as the end of combat operations happened a few months back because for anyone in Afghanistan who is under the age of 35 all they have ever known is war and for anyone who is under the age of 200 all you have known is sporadic war I remember when, uh, when we first went to Afghanistan and Abdullah, we would, have, we would go out and we'd have these shuras with local village leaders. And, you know, oftentimes he said people would ask him, what country am I from? Because they didn't think that I fought for the United States because I didn't look like their image of soldiers from the United States. And they're like, you know, we've seen Brits and we've seen Russians and we've seen Americans. And they're kind of like, so what country is he from? Like, what country is invading us now? Because <laughs> that's all they had known. So I think... Uh, 
as we're thinking about our policies, both domestic and international, we've got to think that these policies have implications. These policies have real-life human implications to what we're doing. And it means we need to be thoughtful. It, needs, it means we need to have a level of foresight. And it, needs, and it means that we need to be consistent in who we are and what we actually hope to achieve. Um, let's be fair here for the time we have left. I'll go back to my questions. I might be inspired by this by the audience. Go ahead, sir. Um, first, Brother Moore, I want to thank you. How are you doing? I want to thank you for your work and what you're doing, and also, for full disclosure, Mr. Mark Steiner, who happens to be one of my um, uh, former instructors. I'd just like to ask you a question in reference to young people, but before I do that, I would like to introduce you. I'm a Baltimore City educator teaching social justice theater, and with minimal coercion, I have five of my most talented performers with me. Stand up, future, subject of conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much. The reason why I wanted to do that was to share with you, what do you think can be done to overcome the twisted, perverted image of children of color, in particularly African-American children in the perception of the media, and, um, and in particular African-American boy children, viewing them as just potential criminals, thugs, predators, as opposed to young people who have experienced horrific trauma and pain, who are just trying to work through it. I have my analysis of it, but I would really love to hear what you'd like to share. Amen. Bless. And thank you for your work. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you for the stuff you, you do every single day. And maybe afterwards, we'd just like to take an ussy with you. It's different from a selfie. We'll be all in it. It'll be a ussy. Of course. Of course. Um, so actually, I think there's, I think there's actually a, a few things that we can collectively and, and, and as a community do. Uh, first thing, we have to understand this about media. It is a business. They drive on eyeballs. They drive on how many people are watching them. They sell advertising dollars based on those things. So the way that you can actually impact media and the way you can actually impact images that are being shown from us from televisions and or radios, etc., is by controlling the amount of eyeballs that they actually have. We can, if, if we cannot continue to support things that are counter to our interests. And the, and, and the ironic thing about it is this, is every single dollar that we spend, whether we realize it or not, is a political decision. I, if you show me your monthly statement of what you spend your money on, I can show you what you find to be important, right? And I think, you know, same thing with government budgets, same thing with all that kind of stuff. You show me what you spend your money on, I can show you what you find to be important. We have to think very clearly about what we support because that support that we're giving will either continue to perpetuate or it will challenge. The second thing that I think we have to do is we also then have to be able to share and show that the images that we think about and that we respect and that we look up to don't necessarily have to be things that are being programmed and shown to us. We have to be not just proactive but we then have to think about changing the whole definition of family, about what it means to have people in your life that show you something different. Because that's who you think about. I remember, and I've, had, and I, I've been blessed because I've had some amazing, 
role models and mentors, many of whom in this room right now. But I remember when my mom first sent me to military school. I was 13 years old and I'd gotten some stuff and she thought the military school was a good answer. And I disagreed. And in the first four days, I had already run away five times from this school. And I remember after the second to last time I tried to run away, I remember I was sitting there in the chair. It was 1 o'clock in the morning. And I had my chain of command behind me. And the chain of command were like the cadets who were in charge. And I'm like, yo, stop looking at me. Stop looking at me. Because they were just like lording over me in the back. Yo, stop looking at me. And I remember looking over my right shoulder. And I saw this guy. He was African-American guy, like 5'11", 230 pounds, like all muscle, no neck, just like this. Right? <laughs> And I looked over, like, yo, stop looking at me. <laughs> and I got real quiet because he was kind of big, right? And, and I, and he, but he never said a word to me. Never said a word. And then the next day, I'm standing in formation, and I'm standing in attention. And I'm looking out of the corner of my eye. And I, and I see him with my TAC officer, who's one of the adults in charge. And I know they were talking about me because they were pointing at me. <laughs> and so, so, so he starts walking over to his company, F Company, which is the bigger cadets, the older guys. And as he's walking over to his company... I assumed that he would just walk into the back of the formation. And as he's walking over to his company, somebody yells, company, attention, and then 150 guys all at once just crack to attention. And he kept on walking to the front of the formation. And the person I thought was in charge saluted him. And he saluted back. And the person I thought was in charge then went to the back of the formation. Now I'm watching this out of the corner of my eye. And I'm thinking to myself, that dude is in charge. Like I had never seen anything like that before in my life. Like someone who literally grown men just cracked to attention simply because he walked in their presence. I had never seen it. And I've never forgotten what that felt like. Now later on, this guy ends up becoming my big brother. He was literally, he was a groomsman in my wedding. I'm still scared of him to this day. But I've never forgot what that feeling was like when I had a chance to see not what other people are telling me who I am, but to see with my own eyes who I am and to see what I can be. So on two fronts, we have to do a better job of helping people to understand the images that we want presented to us. But we have to collectively be much more proactive about answering that question in our own hearts who am I? And that's not something that someone else is going to answer for me. That's something I have to capture for myself and embrace it and hold on to it with everything I've got. And so when other people can give their own personal definitions, I don't need you to explain to me who I am. I know for myself. I don't need you to answer that question for me. I've already figured that out. Do you have any more questions in the audience? Que- we have a question back more. here, Mark. Back there. Please stand up. Um, good afternoon, Mr. Westmore. My name is um, Dion Winston from Alfred Public Charter School. Could you speak to the mic? Oh, right, there you go. I'm sorry. It's okay. Now I would like to ask a question. What educational things would you like to provide us with our society to improve, um, that, to improve our intelligence that's been going on amongst our young people? Great question, sir. So what, what, what's the thing to improve, improve the intelligence? Great question. Thank you. And first of all, you're looking sharp, man. I like that. Sincerely, thank you. And thank you for standing up for your question, too. Um, 
in terms of improving the intelligence, I actually think that it isn't so much about basic reading and, and, and writing and, and, and arithmetic because all those things become incredibly important in the educational value. But I think in that, the educational value has to have a sense of context. I think our educational value has to then mean something. And I think something that I would love for people to understand when it comes to education is this. Your education, while important, will mean nothing if it's not used to the service of other people. That your education, while I know, I know a whole lot of people who have a whole lot of letters after their last name and have a whole lot of degrees, but I can make a very clear and distinct argument that they are not higher educated because they have yet to figure out a way of making that education mean anything to anybody but themselves. So the thing I would say about that education is never forget what that education is supposed to be for that that education is supposed to be for answering the question of who will you fight for? Who will you stand up for when it's not easy? Who will you advocate for when it's not convenient? Who will you stand shoulder to shoulder with when it might just be you two standing there? But you're doing it because it's the right thing to do. And I mean, to be very honest, I mean, I, we talk about education and credentialing. I mean, I, I you know, finished high school, I guess, what, like 16 years ago, something like that finished college, I guess, 12 years ago. But I'm going to be very honest with you. No one ever asked me anymore, so Wes, what did you major in in college? Because that question will fade. Now, do well in school. I'm not, don't, don't, like, not show up tomorrow and say, Wes Moore said school's not important. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> but what I am saying is never forget the purpose of your education in the first place. Because not only will it add a sense of perspective to the education that you're getting, It'll add a long-term meaning. It's never simply going to be about a degree. It'll never simply be about changing the first line of your LinkedIn profile. It'll be about answering the question of who did you choose to fight for? And who did your education matter to more than just you? Should we try to get one more question here? How many do we want to go through? Dr. Johnson. Westmore, uh, I have to say this was one of my students at Johns Hopkins University. One of the and can, things... And can, I, can I say real quick, I'm so sorry, and actually, and, and wrote one of uh, my letters of recommendation for the Rhodes Scholarship and one of the people that convinced me to apply for it in the first place. So God bless you. Thank you. One of the things that I found it important to do, and many colleagues at Hopkins, many are here, was to pour into our students aspiration and hopes and dreams beyond what they may have ever thought about. And what I want you to do is to think about some of the things we said to you that may have compelled you along the way and how you've used those so that others will know the importance and the power of a message, a powerful message to young people. Bless you. Um... First was go to class. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not playing. But, but it's sincerely, and, and again, I say with all my heart, bless you and thank you for everything you've always done and for everything you always meant. Um, I actually think one of the big lessons that, uh, that I learned at Hopkins was actually lessons that we learned outside of the classroom. 
Well, the things that we learned in class, they were important and, 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 they, were, and they were incredibly, incredibly important and useful. But the things that really sit with us and the things that really sit with me is understand that we don't live or reside on some form of island, right? This isn't Gill- Gilligan's Island here, right? There's a reason and to be an institution that prides itself and has pride in who it is, it means that we cannot just be in Baltimore, but we need to be of Baltimore. That it means that our future relies heavily on the city in which we call home. And so I think some of the biggest lessons that I got and I learned and I took, and I still hold on to to this day, was all the other academic achievements that you're going to have will be fine and they'll be great and people will talk about them and they'll be on your resume and your obituary, I guess. But all that stuff will really have no significance or impact unless there really is a basic practical understanding of what that's supposed to mean. You know, I remember when we, we, we had this organization uh, called STAN, which actually still exists to this day, but uh, it works with kids in Baltimore who are involved in the juvenile justice system. And Dr. Johnson is actually very helpful with that as well. And part of the reason that that program started was because I was taking a class called Criminal Justice and Correction. And our professor, a guy named Stephen Harris, said he, didn't believe, he did not give A's to anybody unless they did an, uh, an internship or an externship. Because his philosophy was, I can't justify giving a student an A if all they did was regurgitate what I told them to learn. That's not an A student. You need to go out and see something to actually justify an A. So I wanted an A. So I went out and I was like, all right, I want to go work with youth involved in the juvenile justice system. And because of you know, my background, I was like, I really want to work with this population. And as we started doing and started doing research, we started realizing that there weren't the groups that were focusing on that specific demographic. And this was back in like 1998. And, uh, and in fact, certain groups, and they've since changed their policy, but like, for example, you know, the Police Athletic League, which does remarkable work. But at that time in 98, once a person was involved in the juvenile justice system, they weren't allowed to participate in the Police Athletic League, which didn't make sense to me. Because I was like, these are the students that need you the most. And if you're not willing to work with them now, Police Athletic League, you're going to see them again, Police Athletic League. (laughs) And so we said, well, if we can't figure out who we can work with to do it, then we'll just kind of do it ourselves. And we started this organization called STAM, which stands for Students Taking a New Direction, and uh, works to befriend and tutor and mentor students, generally first and second time offenders in Baltimore City. Those experiences are the ones that I remember most. Those experiences of actually getting together with a group of collectively naive students, but believing that we could actually do something important and change our world, are the things that you most remember because we realize it's the only thing that matters. And so the things that I learned there was never be afraid to take a risk. Never be afraid to take a punt. You're in a position right now, and this is one of the things I actually wanted to even show with this, with this, with this story, is that you're always going to have fear. The work is not about getting rid of fear. Fear is always going to be present. Fear is always going to be your companion. But it's just like a boxer. A boxer, the definition of a good boxer isn't someone who has no fear, because boxers inherently, when they're boxing, they keep their hands up, Right? 
You don't see boxers walking around like this unless you're like Roy Jones Jr. or something like that, right? The reason they're doing it is because even though they might have master confidence in their abilities, even though Mike Tyson, when he came out in a ring, early Mike Tyson, he knew (laughs) that you've got but 90 seconds before I'm going to lay you out. He walked into every single fight with that confidence. But he also walked into every single fight with his hands up. He also walked into every single fight on his toes. Because he knew that confidence wasn't the absence of fear. It was how to control it and how to use it to your advantage. That's the takeaway. We can never be afraid of our destiny. We can never be afraid of our work. The thing we actually need to be afraid of is stagnation. So, we have Carla one has the mic. We have one question, more question. And Carla. it's a short one before the book signs. It'll be a short answer. I'm sorry. I'm long with it. <laughs> Good really? evening. Thank you for all of this. I'm really taking it in. So to be brief, I've heard you mention um, in the media about Bridge EDU, and I wondered if you could speak to that. I have a, a senior in high school getting ready to go into college. So Yes. Thank you. Bless you. So I am incredibly excited for that question. Um, so Bridge EDU was something that we actually started uh, uh, early part of uh, early to mid part of 2014, and it actually initially started off with conversations that we were having with folks down in, down at the White House. We we're like, "What's going on with the college completion issue for so many students?" We're actually nationally doing a better job of getting kids through K-12. Nationally, the numbers are now 80% of kids who start high school will actually finish. That number is extraordinarily high when you consider the fact that just 18, month, 18 years ago, the number was 57%. Okay? So we've made huge gains nationally of now getting kids through high school. The problem is the path of getting kids through college has stayed unbelievably stubborn. And one thing that we see is that those challenges start very early. That for, for nationally, for all students to start college every year, 34% of them will either not make it past their freshman year or will not re-enroll for their sophomore year. 34%. And there's a collection of different reasons. Part of it is, is financial. And the amount of students who either have not navigated a FAFSA or the students who might you know, pick, a, pick a school that isn't the correct fit for them. But oftentimes the financial isn't as big of a reason because of things like the Pell Grants and GI Bills and GAG Grants, etc. Right? The other big part is the need for academic remediation. So you have students who are then going on to college but who still need remediation to get ready for college-level courses. The challenge of that is that college costs the same for them. So you're paying the same amount of regular tuition, but at the end of the year, you then have zero or three or maybe six academic credits. And the third reason is the social. For students who walk into a college campus and within months, they're just like, I don't belong here. And they're gone. And so what we basically said was, with Bridge EDU, we said, if the choke point for most students is the freshman year, then why don't we reinvent the freshman year? Totally change the structure of what the freshman year is. And so what we've done is we partnered with the organization, and we're proud to currently be partnering with both CCBC and UB, where students are going in, they're taking classes. So they're taking up to one to two classes at a time. And they're taking them in nine-week chunks and just separating the academic calendar. So they're getting academic momentum. And, by the way, they're also taking core credit-bearing courses. 
part of the reason why you don't want to give them a full core course load because oftentimes what happens with students is they walk into a classroom and someone says, here are your five classes and good luck. So you're giving them a different academic calendar to build academic momentum and confidence. But at the same time, you're also then being matched up with internships and service learning and a co-curriculum that is personalized towards you. So if you're quantitative or if you're qualitative, if you're into the arts or if you're into the sciences, there are organizations within the city that you will then be matched with and partnered with that you're actually getting real-life practical experience as you're then entering into your collegiate experience. So at the end of the year, you have you know, upwards, upwards, of, upwards of 20 academic credits, 20 or more academic credits. You also have internships and service learning under your belt and work experience under your belt. You have a co-curriculum we're working on everything from how do you maintain a proper social media imprint to what's proper attire for work to how do you address a, a subordinate versus how do you address a boss. And you then continue on your academic education, essentially ready for college, ready for that sophomore year, ready to complete, and not just to complete, but to complete on time. Our goal is not humble. We want to change the way higher education is thought about. We want to change the way people are not just processing into higher education, but how they're completing. Because if we continue having a dynamic where you have so many students who are walking around with debt and no degree, if we continue having a dynamic where we have so many students who are so disillusioned by this promise of higher education, then we can never truly build out this larger, growing middle class that we all hope for. Because you cannot, no one has yet shown me, nor will ever show me, an analysis of a, of a jurisdiction that has grown significantly in, in income, grown significantly in opportunities, and grown significantly in, in jobs and has not also at the same time increased level of some form of college completion. No one has ever showed me that, and I doubt anyone ever will, at least if they're using real numbers. So we're very clear. We want to change this dynamic of higher education. And, and for those who want to, you know, and, and again, it's a platform we're running here in Baltimore. Um, it, the, the website is just bridgeedu.com or just contact me, um, and, and we would love to be able to both share more and to get more people on this on-ramp on this non-traditional on-ramp into what higher education should and could mean. And many of it is the way we really baked it out is I thought about what I would have loved to have had in my experience, and we're just figuring out ways of saying, then you know what, let's democratize it for everybody. Oh. You did? Well, email, so, so if you go to will. either, either info at bridgeedu.com <laughs> or email me, it's just wesm, wesm at bridgeedu.com or any of those things up there, right there, please contact me, and I guarantee you, you will hear back. You will hear back. One Thank of you. the reasons so, why we were rushing a little bit is because the young people you saw getting in line first are from the Afia Charter School, and they have a bus to get on. That's all it so was. Thank you, Wes Moore, so thank then. You, Wes Moore. Thank you, Wes Moore. Thank you, Mark Steiner. You. We have a book signing. Thank everybody.